Not ready? Too bad. Head back, face forward, and hold on like you mean it. Hello and welcome to the Review Time Podcast. This is a weekly show where we discuss all the ins and outs of attractions and parks from around the world. My name is Luke and I will be your expedition leader today as we climb up and explore the Forbidden Mountain itself, finding out for ourselves if the tales of a strobing beast are true. All of the fun of the world's tallest mountain, yet 145 times smaller. This is Expedition Everest, Legend of the Forbidden Mountain. But of course, we won't be getting far up the mountainous peak without some help. So please welcome the only mountain guide I'd trust my life with, Review Time co-host Dominic Lacey. How you going, Dom? I'm doing well. I hope uh, as your guide, we won't be falling down any ridges. And yeah, what's that movie where the guy has to like chop off his arm um, to get out? Yeah. I know the movie you're talking about, but I'm not brave enough to watch it, I think is yeah, the issue. Yeah, me neither. That's why I don't even know the name. So hopefully <laughs> we'll have a more successful expedition than that one. Uh, no lost limbs uh, here today on Expedition <laughs> Everest, we hope. <laughs> um, Expedition Everest, I know we've both ridden it. It's probably... I haven't done any of the Avatar land stuff at Animal Kingdom because I haven't been since that opened. But Expedition Everest is by far my favorite ride in the park. Where's it sit for you? Uh, well, I last went to Walt Disney World. Ooh, it was 2019, early 2019, mm. I believe, um, which feels like many years ago <laughs> now. Um, but when I was there with the new editions of Avatar, it, it does... It's really hard to place it because, you know, I love the new Avatar stuff, but Expedition Everest with the physical effects and being a really just grand roller coaster, um, I still think it would have to be my favorite roller coaster in the park, even though it's the The only only, one. It's one of two, um, (laughs) but it's still rated. It's only one, isn't it? No, well, no, there's the spinny attraction. The world's done, remember? Oh, yeah, it's gone now. That's yeah. right. Okay. What a shame. Um, what a loss. <laughs> well, it's the best and only roller coaster <laughs> at um, Animal Kingdom, but I rate it still quite high. I think I prefer Flights of Passage, but that's mm-hmm. just me. Um, I Not many people know this, but I was massively into Avatar when I was younger. It came out during my teen years, and I was like, man, imagine going over into space and all that, So I, because I'm hugely into space as well. So being a mad nerd, that's my secret please don't tell anyone (laughs) (laughs) that's fair that's fair i would almost say like everest is one of my favorite coasters in the world which sounds bizarre everyone will probably judge me for it the same way everyone judges you for saying that space mountain is your number one but it's i've been on a lot of coasters around the world but this is the one that is the most complete package i feel it's so much more than just a big thrilling ride it has dark ride it has you know forwards backwards all of those different elements that build into that perfect package Um, it really takes what they wanted to do with um not expedition everest the one at california um matterhorn I, I just had Everest stuck in my mind. I couldn't think of that name for a second. Um, it really takes what they wanted to do with that and expands on it, which I find kind of cool. It's almost as if you can see the progression over the years of how they've gotten to Expedition Everest, but I'm sure you'll elaborate more on that as we we get into the actual podcast itself. Yeah, so quickly we'll go through what Disney gives its official description of the attraction. It's where we usually like to start because it's interesting to see how a company tries to sell something on a website to you. So Disney's description of Expedition Everest starts with one of the worst puns I've ever read on a theme park website. Yeti or not, here he comes. Oh, I hate that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but then it goes kind of to describe it a little bit better by saying, wander into a Tibetan village at the base of Mount Everest and board a train to the top of the world. But where? Some say a legendary snow monster lives deep in the mountain, which is a nice kind of little tease. Doesn't really say too much about the ride. And same, a lot of, even when you're off ride and looking at it, you can kind of see the lift hill and one drop and that's it. Most of the ride is a mystery until you're on it. That is very true. They've made a um, they've made it in such a way that 
pretty much, well, because it's right at the back of the park, you can only see that one angle. And a lot of the surprises within the attraction do remain a surprise. And we can go over those. I'm sure we're not going to spoil anything for anyone. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm fairly certain that you will have experienced Expedition Everest at some point. But from, from the facade, like where you can see the mountain, that's a really good point that all of the, the show beats are, are quite well hidden. Yeah, and to talking about mountains, we do want to go back and just quickly touch on what you were talking about before with Matterhorn bobsleds, which is the first of the Disney mountains. And that opened up many years ago now, back in 1959. It was part of the largest expansion in Disney's history. The sub-voyages, the monorails, they all opened. And this was not just the first Disney mountain, but also the first steel track tubular roller coaster in the world. And it's kind of where... The mountains have built from so to my count today i'm counting somewhere between 18 and 21 disney mountains including overlaps some people count things like the cadillac range at cars land as one of them so that's why it's a range there because mm. i wouldn't necessarily but i decided to give a range so we don't get the angry emails that we've got it wrong um <laughs> But of all of them, the Forbidden Mountain is the tallest of them all. It's 199.5 feet, um, which is, of course, because anything over 200 feet needs to have a bright flashing light on the top of it. So stuff like, you know, uh, Spaceship Earth, uh, Cinderella Castle are all pretty much 199 feet. So they don't need that beacon for the uh, planes to see it. If you ever see the wand that used to be on the side of spaceship earth that actually had to have a flashing light on the top of it because it was oh, too yeah. tall so that's if true that could get any uglier chuck a big red light on the top of it as well look i'm sure nowadays with the amount of pool that disney has i'm sure that they'd be able to circumvent that law somehow um and i wouldn't be surprised if in the future if they wanted to build something massively tall that they could get away with it but i do find that sometimes these limitations can create some really creative outcomes and i like how this is exactly 199.5 like someone is going up there with a ruler i mean like oh it's just under no one's <laughs> like, gonna hit this with a plane the floridian um, officials are sitting there with a big blinking red light being like Damn it, maybe next time <laughs> um one of my interesting things i found out is that being 199.5 feet it's actually the fourth highest mountainous summit in florida which is an incredibly low, like low-lying state as it is, but the fact a fake mountain is in their top five highest points is insane to me. Well, we've both flown over Florida um, in flight simulator, <laughs> which is an amazing way of figuring out the the geometry of the land, um, and it's it is very flat, so <laughs> it. it does make sense necessarily show how that can be the fourth highest summit in the entire state. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to quickly to look at. Expedition Everest, we need to take a step way back uh, to when Animal Kingdom opened. Um, And I don't know if you know it, but one of my most bizarre facts that I have heard about Animal Kingdom is the advertising slogan they went with, which Mm. was that they made up a word that kind of sounded African in nature, and it was Natazu, which, if you listen to (laughs) it again... The tagline was, Disney's Animal Kingdom. It's many, many things. But remember, it's not a zoo. It's not a zoo. Well, they well, made why up not just say it's that, not a zoo? <laughs> no, no, this is a nice exotic way of saying this is a theme park, not a zoo. Uh, I think it only lasted kind of very early on in it because it was so bizarre. Where it, I don't understand it. Just, yeah, exactly. Say that it wasn't a zoo because it opened up and that was the biggest issue Disney had at the time. How do they say that this is worth, you know, double or triple what it costs you to get into your local city zoo? So mm. it's Nata Zoo, I guess. <laughs> um, See, I, I don't but, know why they wouldn't yeah. just go with a an actual word or phrase from African culture, Mm -hmm. which then they could be like, oh, when translated, it's this. I guess maybe that's too hard for people to figure (laughs) out. But it's kind of like if Hakuna Matata was Bia the Happy, 
Like it, it just doesn't it doesn't have the same ring to it. So no, it's not quite subtle, is it? It's like a kick no. in the teeth. Um, but Animal Kingdom opens up in 1998 and this everyone was kind of like, this is good, but there's not enough here. And that's, of course, because of budget cuts, stuff like that. Beastly Kingdom was cut. Um all those sort of things. So guests enjoyed the park, but immediately Imagineers, guests, um, executives knew that something had to be done to make the park bigger. And the biggest thing in phase two was this. So Expedition Everest, where it is in the park was nothing. It was just an expansion plot upon opening. You couldn't even walk at that point between Asia and Dino Land. Uh, there was nothing there. Essentially, you oh, would have wow. to go back to the hub, sort of Discovery Island, to get over that way. Um, yeah, because Animal Kingdom opened during that time, which, uh, surprisingly enough, I feel like every single one of my videos falls into uh, nowadays, which <laughs> is that period between 1995 and 2005 where Michael Eisner was on the way out mm. and the Disney company just had... It's almost as if they just didn't have faith in their theme parks anymore and you can see when when this park opened it just had really nothing in the terms of attractions outside of the um the safari so it, it was a very welcome addition when everest finally came um coming up yeah and i think this is probably the best park at opening in that era after um paris failed and you've got that era that pretty much is from here, 98, all the way through, I would say, you know, until 2005 with the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland. The few that opened in that point, apart from Disney Sea, obviously, were having issues. And it's a, the one good thing about this park is the issues didn't equate to cut budgets equaling cut quality at places like DCA, but it more meant that the park wasn't as big as it should have been. But the stuff that was there, apart from Camp Mini Mickey, was of a really high quality and not Dino Land USA, but we don't <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> now, um, I actually, um, did Dino Land USA open with the park? I'm pretty sure. Oh, uh, we've stumped each other. Um, this is rare. <laughs> <laughs> I know Dinosaur at opening was Countdown to Extinction. Um, for a little while, which then became Dinosaur after the film came out. And now I would suggest more people would know the movie. Uh, sorry, would know the ride than the movie. Oh, yeah. The oddly animated mm. and just all round horrifying looking mm. 3D film, that, which <laughs> I believe was the first 3D film that Disney had ever really invested in or it's fully some, 3D. Yeah, where it, I think it was in that era where disney was like who needs pixar we can do better than pixar us oh no we can't let's buy pixar <laughs> um, no, there's a reason why pixar is as uh, well regarded as they are yeah uh what am i so it took a ton of construction a few years in development to create the 100 million dollar attraction that is expedition Ooh. everest which for a long time was the most expensive coaster in the world until Universal was like, oh, 100 million, chump change. Hagrid's cost us 300 million. Oh. (laughs) um, (laughs) Just, you know, a little bit of difference. But a lot of that from Hagrid had to come from getting rid of Dueling Dragons, retrofitting the area for that sort of stuff. Paying the talent. (laughs) Yeah. Especially for the time, Expedition Everest was an incredibly expensive coaster. This coaster is 14 years old at this stage and 100 million for a ride nowadays where you're like, oh, Galaxy's Edge is a billion dollars. This costs this, this costs this. 100 million back then for a roller coaster was unheard of. It's incredible to me that you can have a whole theme park with 10 Expedition Everest's just, you know, style them all differently, different track layouts, maybe the same sort of beats, but just have one's a, an Expedition Everest, one space-themed and all of that for the same price that you could get Star Wars Galaxy's, uh, <laughs> Galaxy's Edge. But I think it really shows what Disney want to do with their money nowadays mm. and how far they want it to go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, researching this, one of my interesting things I didn't really know but now when you think about it it's like that makes sense it's like so we all know that it's called expedition everest but the mountain we climb isn't actually everest um 
But oh. if you're looking at the mountain, so that mountain is called the Forbidden Mountain. So the idea is of the ride, you're boarding a train and the train's going to take you to Everest. But to get there, it's going to go through a shortcut through the Forbidden Mountain. Forbidden Mountain is something completely made up by Imagineering, but it's part of, you know, the that area. It's meant to be part of the mountains around there. Um, and the idea is you board the train, it takes you through, but of course the Yeti watches over it. But if you look at the mountain itself, Expedition Everest, if you picture it in your mind or if you're listening at home, get up a picture. Mm. If you look at it, it's got a few peaks. One of them on the right-hand side looks a little bit shorter than the rest, but it also has no snow on it compared to the rest of the peaks. That peak isn't meant to be part of the Forbidden Mountain, but is actually meant to be Everest itself. Oh, the one on the right? Like, Yeah, so that's designed to be using force perspective to represent Everest. So as if Everest is way in the background of the Forbidden Mountain and you're jumping aboard the train to go through the Forbidden Mountain on your way to it, which is something I- we're now looking at it. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, but I didn't know that. That's what it no, was. No, even what you were saying where you're traveling through Forbidden Mountain, like I've mm. ridden this attraction so many times uh, in the, the amount of times that I've gone to Walt Disney World, I've never picked up that that's the actual story. Is this sort of given out through the queue or is this through promotional material? How did you find out about that story? Yeah, so it's a, a bit of that. The queue itself has that. We'll talk about it a little bit of as well. It's got so much detail that you can pick little bits and pieces up every time you ride and then piece it together yourself. But a lot and the reason I actually wanted to do it for this week's video was I was watching the incredible documentary. Um mm. it's called like Making a Thrill Ride Expedition Everest or something like that. It's up on YouTube and they were talking about all this sort of stuff and heaps was clicking for me when I was listening to them talk about it. I was like Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So we'll talk about it when we go through the queue and stuff like that and explain how this story is built in a way that isn't, you know, a traditional pre-show that's like, oh, welcome to Himalayan escapes. You're going to go to Everest. Like, it's built in a more natural way, I feel, which, Mm. of course, runs the risk of not really understanding it. But then at the same time... Did that detract from your experience, not really understanding that that was Everest? No, not at all. And I think... As you um, as you were pointing out with the the style in which that is introduced, I, I can see here. Um, I may be skipping ahead a little bit, but being a, a Joe Rody attraction, um, you can really tell that's how he presents his stories. He he doesn't like just going, "Hey, here's the story," and dumping it all in a film. Except for with the limitation of Tower of Terror, the the new version, um, Mission Breakout mm-hmm. for Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which he had no other choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can tell in really all of his other attractions, he loves to put those tiny little details so that every time you ride it, no matter which queue you're going through, no matter how full it is, um, whether you're going through Fast Pass, you have the ability over time to learn more about the attraction. And I find that rewrite ability then becomes so much more satisfying Mm. and yeah that's let's talk about him the man the myth the legend joe roadie himself (laughs) the king of animal kingdom uh he has no you mean the man attached to the earring which (laughs) is joe (laughs) roadie um but in designing for this ride what he actually did was they took a team of imagineers over to tibet Uh, to make sure that the ride, the queue, entrance area, all the buildings around were as genuine as possible, which is why that town feels so real. Um, And in the designing phase, you know, they were working with clay models. I think it took them like 24 models before they got to the stage where like, yes, this is the mountain. This is the mountain itself. You know, this is the one that's going to be built in massive scale. Um, Mm. And the construction of the mountain as well was done in a really different way to what you might expect most days things are constructed big scaffolding on the outside build it up tear down the scaffolding see what it looks like uh you couldn't do this with the mountain because they needed to essentially sculpt the mountain as they went so they had scale models but you can't just blow them up to full scale and see what it looks like they essentially put in 
like hundreds of what they describe as toothpicks, which were big steel bars that would hang off the side of the mountain. Mm. They would attach their scaffolding on top of those bars, build the mountain, and then cut off the bars themselves and then fill in the holes. So essentially it meant they didn't need any scaffolding from the outside because the scaffolding was being supported by the mountain itself until the point where they didn't need it anymore and they cut it off, built it up. It allowed them to utilize the skills required to make the mountain look realistic from both Mm. far away and up close, which is incredibly difficult utilizing force perspective and stuff like that. Um, And they say they talk about it and they say, you know, looking at this in 20 years time, people aren't going to know how we managed to make this look so realistic without using scaffolding because they essentially cut away the evidence and buried it within the mountain itself. Yeah, it's kind of like I can imagine if you have a big cube and inside it you've got this 3D grid and then they've just cut away at that 3D grid to create the mountain. That's a, a really clever way of doing it. Um, yeah. Interesting um, interesting innovation there. Mm. We'll talk about the mountain. It is built up of a couple of separate parts. So the mountain and the coaster tracks are completely separate from each other. So... They're as close as physically possible, so they try to keep them about six inches apart, but they never touch anywhere within the support, anywhere within the mountain itself. That's because coaster track, when you've got a roller coaster going, you need the track to be able to flex, to be able to bend. The supports do that. It's built in. That's required for safety. The problem is a giant mountain, you don't want it to move at all. Because of the plaster and the concrete and the cement, it's just going to crack if it moves yeah. and it's going to eventually fall down. So they had to design it in such a like a mesh, a maze within the mountain that everything's as close as it can be that's holding up both individual parts without them ever touching. Um, and of course, there is a third part of the mountain being the Yeti, but we'll talk a lot more about him um, a little the, the bit later. The controversial part of the podcast. Um, um, it, it yep. makes a lot of sense because when you're looking at the attraction, if you get the opportunity when you're on the side to just peep over the edge, oftentimes in some of the parts where it's sort of zooming through the mountain, mm. you can look down and just see straight down into the attraction underneath the track. Um, in certain areas, you can tell that they've just sort of, they're intermingled, but they're not quite touching. But it, it is cool that they're actually two completely separate um, structures. Yeah, I know the the part you're talking about. If you're ever on the left hand side, especially in the backwards part, look out of the train and straight down. You'll see essentially to the bottom of the mountain through all the track, mm. through all the supports. Um, but the ride itself uh, opened up on the 7th of April 2006. Bob Iger was there to open it up um, and it was uh, took around three years from announcement to final construction. Uh, upon opening, and still to this day, it features 4,400 feet of track, which is 1.3 kilometers, and a maximum drop of just 80 feet or 24 meters, which is nothing really in roller coaster terms. Um, does manage to reach a maximum speed of 50 kilometers or 80 miles an hour. Wait, no, other way around. 80, <laughs> 80 miles an hour, 50 kilometers. No, I whichever no. way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate the metric versus the imperial system. Can you tell? Um, it it so would be fifty 80 miles kilometers an hour, an hour. Eighty kilometers. There we go. Yeah, um, and it has an absolutely massive capacity of two thousand and fifty people an hour. Which, for, especially coming from Australia, where some of our rides we've calculated to be like two hundred people an hour. That's <laughs> insane. Um, and one of my favorite things in for publicity, for advertising, when this ride was new, they did something in New York called Everest in the City. So in Times Square, they took a couple of buildings and they essentially put the entire building as a billboard looking like Mount Everest with a train rushing down it. And then right up in the corner, they had a Yeti, what looked, you know, the Yeti. Then you could, in one of the most 2000s thing I've ever heard, you could text the word... Disney to the number four Yeti and then the Yeti's eyes would light up on the billboard <laughs> which is the <laughs> ultimate ridiculousness thing I could probably think of 
back when it was super cool to um to have you know text messages i remember federation square at melbourne mm. had that big wall where you could text message but most of the time it was just overtaken by conspiracy theorists who would just maximize yeah. the character <laughs> limit so i i guess in that sense they're they're making it good um but was there a delay on this like i'm not sure i i almost feel like it could be the thing where disney could have just gone oh let's just make it flash every 20 seconds i'm sure then someone will go that was me i did that i did yeah, that like when New it's York's just suing it itself <laughs> yeah very busy place i can't yeah, imagine like Times Unless it square. was yeah, 4 a.m. in the morning, you're sitting there and you're like, all right, I'm going to test this out. <laughs> Just no one's around, no one messaging, it lights up and it's like, I got you, Disney. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> uh, but now let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll explore the Forbidden Mountain itself, the queue, the facade, all of those things. This week's episode of the Review Time podcast is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. For exclusive perks and to show us your support, be sure to check out patreon.com forward slash review time. All right, and we are back. Now, we usually talk at this point about the weenie, the facade of the ride, but the weenie for this is pretty hard to miss. It's a giant mountain range plonked in the middle of a theme park. Uh-huh. Um, it can be seen from plenty of places throughout. I think one of my favorites is like a bridge. And it's like for a spectacular view because you've got the river there. You've got the lake where they used to perform Rivers of Light and you've got the mountain in the background. Probably 10 million people have taken the exact same shot and probably 9.9 million of them have looked spectacular just because of the way it's staged by Imagineers. It's between uh, Expedition Everest, the actual attraction entrance itself, and the Finding Nemo Theatre, which I think is called Theatre in the Wild or something like that. It's got a different name, but it's currently got um, the Finding Nemo, the Mm. musical, within it at the moment but if you're walking past that i know exactly where you're talking about that bridge it's just spectacular so that one's got a really good view of the drop but there's another one that comes from discovery island towards asia that gives you like a much longer view Uh, Uh, it's the bridge that if you go across it i believe it takes you straight into the bird show Ah, uh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and it's got that view over the water. It's spectacular. And then the one you're talking about as well gives you that view of that really big, which what well, looks big drop, mm. which isn't that big at all, but because of the way it's half of it's hidden and stuff like that. Um, but as a, from where I'm talking about, as you go across the bridge, you get into you know the Asian village, so the vis- uh, the village of Anadapur which in English translates to the place of many delight. Um, You walk through that, that's going to take you through the original Asia section that was there when the park opened. You'll eventually get to the new section, which is called Sirka Zong, which is a small Tibetan village in the foothills of the Himalayas. And the building's been designed to look like it's been there for a very long time, which listening to Imagineers was easier said than done because... You have to make it look like it's crumbling and falling down while still keeping up to modern building codes. So. Yeah, you can't just build a building and then go along with a sledgehammer. And, yeah. and I guess because the way it's painted, like a lot of the time underneath those facades is sometimes just foam um, mm. or concrete. So if they start smashing away at it, it's just <laughs> it's not going to look right. They've got these brick facades with then concrete bricks so well, it's funny yeah, that you say it, that. it does present um, a um, an interesting challenge the part with the sledgehammers because in the documentary i was talking about they actually had this really ornate nice wooden structure that they had built and they built it immaculately and then they're like all right time to age it and this big burly guy comes along <laughs> and just whacks it with a sledgehammer oh. <laughs> and like blows it part of it out and then they like glue it back together to make it look like it's been damaged over years well i guess um, that works it's um I, I do just want to quickly point out they missed an opportunity here to call the village nata zoo <laughs> <laughs> everything in the park should have been called nata zoo um, hey we're over here in the asian village nata zoo <laughs> um but anyway the as you walk into this village here, the most prominent structures, it's where the queue is, is what used to be the Royal Anandapur Tea Company. Though that company seems to have been long gone, and of course, being a tourist trap in that, uh, in 
this section of the land, that's the idea. The buildings have been overtaken by these tourist companies to try to cash in on everyone wanting to come to the foothills of the mountain to scale Everest. And that's the idea. So as you walk into all those buildings, that first building, that was one of the tea company. Originally, it was a tea company building, but they've strung up their own banner that says um, Himalayan escapes and it invites you to embark on their most exciting tour, Expedition Everest. So this is kind of the part where we were talking about the um, storyline before. And these are the little things that build to that. So, you know, we know that we're about to go on an Everest expedition from the title and the Himalayan escapes is the company company that's going to do it for us which you then you step foot into the queue um, which takes you through the yeti museum now the yeti museum is set up for tourists so of course it's designed in that way that any of those kind of tourist trap you know about bigfoot or something like that they try to make it look like it exists so they show evidence and proof you know they've got some blurry pictures footprints um and some evidence of a lost expedition that was apparently eaten by the yeti back in the 1980s Uh, um and all of that is building up this creature that we don't know about and ultimately you only get to see for a couple of seconds but it's building this mythical beast up um q then takes you around some ornate tibetan shrines and overall is one of walt disney world's most elaborately themed cues it's not just big old switchbacks or anything like that it's taking you through these rooms in the museum taking you to the little tibetan shrines where people are tossing coins in and stuff like that and the queue itself is made up of over eight thousand individual props most of which they acquired on that trip to tibet they would often go from what i've heard into a store and say We'll take it all, sort of thing. <laughs> they talk about um, they have nails that they're holding things to the wall in the museum. And they went into the store and they literally bought a supply that the guy would usually sell in an entire year. They just bought in one go. Oh. So that's kind of the, the blessing of the Imagineers. If they come through your village and they shower you with money to take away your old shears or your nails or something yeah. like that. <laughs> um, Meanwhile, then someone comes in later that day and it's like they walk into this bear shop <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, these bunch of Americans just came in and bought all the useless junk I've had laying around for years. <laughs> but where are the shears? <laughs> I needed those. Um, but one of my favourite right as you're about to exit the museum you know the part you're about to go into the train station i believe it's also the merge for fast pass nowadays um but there's a sign hanging up there it's quite small you may not see it but it's from the curator of the museum and it says you're about to enter the sacred domain of the yeti guardian and protector of the forbidden mountain those who proceed with respect and reverence for the sanctity of the natural environment and its creations should have no fear to all others a warning you risk the wrath of the Yeti, which I feel is that nice little, you know, the, these building of the story in a way that isn't just a pre-show that's telling you this. You know, you have to absorb. And I feel nowadays a lot of people who are probably on their phones miss a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, but these are the things that build that nice little bits of story. Um, and then my favorite part underneath that is... Another little sign that's tacked on that says the opinions expressed by the curator of the Yeti Museum in no way reflect the views of the owners and operators of Himalayan escapes. <laughs> Just as a, no, 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 nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. Um, well, so I you think pull, you were, yeah, you bring up a good point there with um, mobile phones, and I think you can really see in the way that Disney have changed how they do their cues and pre-shows and that because it is a matter of. I think a lot of people would miss this nowadays, whereas when it first came out, when phones weren't all that prevalent and were more big, giant briefcases with a <laughs> actual headpiece attached to them, um, which I think I'm not giving 2005 <laughs> enough credit for because I think that's when the first iPhone came out. But, nah, briefcase phones. Um, but, yeah, it, it's you know, didn't Disney even say recently that they're not even bothering theme, uh, theming roofs? Because people just don't look up from their phones enough. Yeah, everyone's looking down. I know a lot of cues are now being designed more 
in the way of, you know, Disney Play, Disney Parks app, Mm. stuff like that, interactivity, building it into a separate app rather than making the queue interesting enough itself sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Which is a real shame because queues like this, as we were saying before, this is probably the best queue in Walt Disney World Resort to look at the way it tells a story, the way it builds you up. And this ride... I would say as one of the best pacings of any attraction in the world, it is Mm. constantly building from the moment you even view the mountain from wherever you are in the park. Um, But we're up to the point. So we round and we see the train pull up to the station. It's got this really cool effect where it's a steam train, but obviously it's not. But the part at the back, it pulls into the station and all the steam billows out of it, which is like hidden jets in the actual track of the station itself, Ah. which then is fed up into what looks like the steam train engine and puffs out from everywhere in there, which is just another little touch that isn't needed and may not even be done to these days. But this, like, huge train pulls up, which it's incredibly long for a coaster. It can hold 34 passengers in 17 rows, which is how they manage that, you know, uh, over 2,000 people an hour. Um, well, it's a um, it's almost like a reverse Big Thunder Mountain because Big Thunder Mountain has that piece at the front, um, mm. the sort of steam train area, whereas this one has it at the back, and I think yeah. that's good because then you know, I've always had the problem with Big Thunder Mountain. Your view is partially obstructed mm-hmm. by that front piece, so it's yeah. good that they put that at the back. And also, that front piece has fallen off and hurt someone before so on big thunder so let's the back's a better idea but anyway you you sit down you clip in your restraint and you start on this nice slow scenic section so you're going around you know it's Mm. that pacing we're talking about it's building up it's building up you're going around this nice soft section and you start going up the lift hill this is the Main lift hill of the ride, it has two, but the first one is tiny and just after the station. But this is the main one, and you go through this temple. And this building is happening again. The temple has got all these candles around it, and it has this giant picture of the Yeti. And that's kind of your last warning, shall we say. Like, you stop, don't go ahead. Because as you get to the top, you crest the corner, and you go into the first part where... The story instantly changes. So you go up and the track is torn to shreds. Around, there's all the footprints. You can see the Yeti has been there and he doesn't want you to stay, essentially. And as Mm. soon as this happens, the storyline instantly changes. You no longer want to get to Everest. You just want to get back safely. Um, And the stoppage, I'm sure you have your opinions on some of it as well, has some of the best and worst parts of the ride. The best parts, including that reverse track, which at the time was never before done. Six seconds in 2006 is incredibly fast to do a switch track. And if you watch Mm. it, it's on like a big drum almost. And it does it like 180 and flips over. Um, And that's why you're held there. And then you go back. Um, One of my other... Stupid, I don't know why it's there. It's not there half the time. Uh, Bird on a stick. Have you been privy to bird on a stick? I don't think I have been privy to bird on a stick. stick. Uh, It's an effect. (laughs) I don't know what it's meant to do, but it comes up on the left-hand side as you're held there. It literally just goes up and goes, and then goes back down. It is a bird (laughs) on a stick. Um, And I think it's meant to just give you something to look at because the track switch takes six seconds and you're held there. But it's also home to my least favorite thing, the stupid hairbands. Oh, yeah. I hate the hairbands. I hate the (laughs) hairbands. And I know it's not Disney's fault. But God, do I hate the hairbands. It's that thing where I think so many people see the hairbands and then go, I need to put my hairbands there because, you know, it's like the coins at the start of the attraction. Mm. You see someone flicking a coin and so you flick in a coin. Yeah, it's like the um, the tomato juice on a plane dilemma. Yeah, they found that most people. I know this sounds really out of the blue, 
but <laughs> most people on a plane don't usually order tomato juice, but they found in a simulated environment, if the person in front of you buys it, you are then more likely to get it because you've heard hmm. all of these rumors about, oh, tomato juice tastes so much better on a plane. And suddenly the person in front of you is doing that. I know, super left of field, oh, but bizarre. it's that thing where it's like, oh, well, I now have to put my hairband <laughs> yeah, over there. Juice. <laughs> yeah. And I think I've heard the thing where it's like Disney, when they do clean them up, the next day it's back to how it was because it's not, it becomes not just somebody else has done it. I'm going to do it. But also, I remember last time I was here, this was a thing we did. So I'm going to do it again. So even if oh. there isn't some there, people will do it just because they've done it before. So if you're listening to this, please don't fling your hairband. It ruins a spectacularly designed ride. Uh, but anyway, yeah. moving on before <laughs> I get crazy. Um, you then go backwards. Calm down, Luke. You pulled some quite impressive G-forces that I wasn't expecting in that backwards helix. Um, and then you hit the cave and you see the Yeti itself. And this is more of this buildup. So you've seen his footprints up top and seen what he can do. Now you're seeing a silhouette of him and he's ripping up a track. So this is the second time we see him. He rips up the track. He turns, he roars at you and you zoom forward and down the largest drop, which is the one there's always seems to be a crowd watching because it is a really mm. impressive part of the ride to watch. You can get some awesome photos there. Um, you go down, you go through the cave, you hear the Yeti again. So it's he's building up of what he looks like. You know, what do you see? sounds like, all these sort of things. You go up the helix and into another large cave. And inside that cave is where we find, shall we say, the elephant in the podcast. Because this is where the Yeti, the most advanced audio animatronic for the time, he's 20 feet, 25 feet tall, he's four tons, he has 250 zippers built into his skin, and he doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, so he only worked for a few months before the A mode, which if you've, there's videos out there. Have you seen the video of the lights on of this Yeti? I have where he's like actually reaching out yeah. at the train. It's Swiping. a very short video. Oh. It's almost like it's from CCTV angle, um, but it's incredible. Like mm. the amount of movement that that mm. animatronic goes through and the fact that it, it's like you can imagine he's just holding on from one point and the rest of his body is mm. leaning out towards you. It's something that I don't really think any animatronics have done before. Even I'm thinking another big one that I've seen, which is at um, Journey to the Center of the Earth at Tokyo mm. Disney Sea, which is the sort of giant large worm monster. Mm. It gets nowhere near you, but this is <laughs> right over you, lunging at you, mm -hmm. and all of its weight is just held on from its arm behind mm. you or well, what you can see anyway yeah so yeah it really does look like he's just hanging there and he's hanging in the place you saw him before because there's track around him that is ripped so this is the part ah. where he's ripped up that track which is hard to see now because of the strobing light but the yeti itself in a mode where he swings at the front only lasted for a few months because it found out that he was essentially tearing the mountain apart. <laughs> if they kept him on, Expedition Everest would have fallen apart over time. He was too good of an animatronic. He was too powerful was of too an animatronic. <laughs> yeah, he's too big. Um, and, of course, with the way that the mountain is built, as we were talking about before, where the uh, track is interacting with the mountain but never touching it's almost impossible for them to fix it without destroying and rebuilding a large portion of the mountain, which is a real shame because I didn't, I haven't heard the exact numbers, but of a hundred million dollar coaster, something of this size was probably a sizable chunk of that. And oh, yeah. now for it to sit there and be completely stagnant is a real shame. And even today, I think almost Disney might be scared of doing something of this size again. If you look at the biggest animatronics out there nowadays, um, what trumped this first was Crane Dance, which was at Resort World Sentosa for a while, which was these two giant robotic animatronic cranes, like the birds who would dance with each other. And what is currently called the largest animatronic in the world, 
and go have a look at it if you're listening to this because it's one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life uh, is a King Kong <laughs> animatronic at a theme park in Tanzania. But I'm reluctant to even call it an animatronic because it looks like somebody got a toy of King Kong that you would get out of a Happy Meal or something that can lift its arms up and down very slightly and they just shove that in a park and went, yeah, this is the biggest animatronic in the world now. It it barely moves. It barely does anything. There's a few videos out there of it and all the comments seem to agree with me that that's not really yeah. an animatronic. <laughs> no, um, it's... What do they call it? Um, it's almost like dumb animatronics where it's like they've just got single points of articulation um they they were really prevalent in the early disneyland where it's like when you're going through the riverboat and it's a deer and all it does is its neck moves or something like that one degree of movement and that's Mm. it i can't remember the actual yeah because looking at that it does look like he, he just lifts his arms um which i don't think it counts but i think one of the The only reasons why they could have gotten away with this, if you look at how they build um, or like build as in, you know, sold the Mm. actual experience, the animatronic was built as that thing where it's like, this is going to be the payoff. Like it's Mm. going to be a full part of the attraction. Um, And I only think that they've gone this long without touching it because the rest of the attraction is is quite spectacular. Mm. If it wasn't up to the par, like if it was riding off this animatronic, Mm. then definitely we would have seen something done. But I think it's just a case of who has the time to do this nowadays? Like who is going to go in and close down your centerpiece attraction for possibly a year or two Mm. to deconstruct a significant portion of the mountain for what people will see for about three seconds. And I can see yeah. why executives aren't really considering this. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're saying. It is only a few seconds of the ride. And I think the other big thing with that is only being a few seconds, it's not really that big of an issue. And the strobing kind of works. I hate to mm. say it. Like... I've ridden it before and there would have been times where I could have sworn that that Yeti moved, that that Yeti swiped at me. I know, of course, that it didn't, but the strobe works better than it should. The disco Yeti discos up a storm. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel so sorry for Joe Rody because you can tell he really wants it to be a thing. And he's promised at D23 to fix the Mm. Yeti. Um, But I just don't think he's ever going to get an executive on his side unless they come in and say, yeah, I think their only opportunity was just after Avatar opened and Mm -hmm. everyone was like, this is amazing. But even then, the problem that they've got now is Avatar consistently has about a two or three hour wait. So how do you Mm -hmm. close down like a park where Everest now diverts so much attention away Mm -hmm. from Avatar? How do you close down Everest and just funnel more people into that land. Exactly. Especially when we're saying, you know, that is 2,000 people an hour that ride can absorb. You know, in a 10-hour average operating day, that's 20,000 people who can ride that. What else are they going to do if that ride's closed for so long? You know, they don't have... You know, Even with the new Avatar stuff, they were always saying, oh, they'll fix it after they build Avatar. But Avatar just made the park more popular, so now it still needs Expedition Everest. It didn't keep the same popularity. It made it one of the must-do parks of the resort. Exactly. And And I think that if Avatar came out and it was consistently at a 30-minute wait, Mm. we would have seen Expedition Everest you know, have have some work done to it. But mm. unfortunately, Sadly. I just don't see it happening anytime soon unless they announce another land expansion to Everest, which, uh, not Everest, Animal Kingdom. But even then, I think what we've got, well, I guess it's maybe up for an expansion because Hollywood Studios has had mm. Galaxy's Edge, Magic Kingdom is getting... Uh, Tron, uh, Epcot is Epcot and just is getting everything at Let's the moment. Let's not talk about that right um, now because who knows? And, <laughs> well, well, it was getting everything. It's meant to. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think 
that park, it seems to be with them closing Primeval World. I'm not sure if that was the first step in maybe redoing Dino Land. Mm. I'm not sure if Dino Land got redone. There was some rumors around, you know, of it becoming um, Indiana Jones and all those sort of things, which I don't necessarily believe. But if it something happened to it and it became the must-do, that could maybe be the time. Uh, but to quickly wrap up, you know, you finish with the Yeti disco. You have your dance with him. Uh, you go back into the station. You survived your expedition <laughs> to Everest. You survived your meeting with the Yeti. Um, and the ride as a whole is what we were quickly saying before. Um, and there is a word for it. So it's what Joe Road calls ambient storytelling. So mm. it's not you know, punching you with exposition. You may not recognize those finer points, the details that have been put into it, but all of it in the pie, you know, building up to the attraction, you can enjoy it just as a ride if you don't get any of the backstory. But every time you come back, you might understand just 1% more of the story and 1% more of the story. And every time, with especially with the queue, there's that little bit more to take out. And that idea of ambient storytelling is that constant building. You can take away everything. You could spend, you know, looking through the queue at every little piece, every little bit of an artifact, or you could walk through the queue on your phone, not have any idea what's going on, sit down in that train and still have an awesome ride. Exactly. It is one of the most spectacular roller coasters in the world because of that. Yep, exactly. And if you ever do one thing, one nice little thing, if you're ever in the car park, make sure you check out the backside of Everest um, because it's bizarre <laughs> to watch. They've kind of like painted it to maybe look like a little village or something. But compared, the front compared to the back is one of the most stark contrasts in the world of Disney theme parks. But if anyway, you look um, up... Uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes of Expedition Everest, uh, go to images. There are often images of what it looks like behind. Mm. And yeah, it, it is just flat. It, yep. It's Backside very of Everest. <laughs> it's like a big shed, essentially, yeah. which shows you how skilled the Imagineers are. Uh, because from the front, you would never guess that it's a big brown shed. <laughs> but anyway, exactly. uh, any final thoughts there on Expedition Everest? No, I think you've uh, definitely covered everything. And yeah, even just through this, my appreciation for this attraction has gone way up because there are lots of things that even though I specialize in having to know as much as possible about theme parks, I've managed to learn quite a lot from this. Yeah, as I was saying, it's one of my favorite rides in the world. Hopefully I've done it justice. But anyway, this has been another episode of the Review Time podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can get in contact with me at Review Time Luke on Twitter. I am at Review Time Dom on Twitter. Of course, you can get in touch with both of us at Time Review on Twitter or on Instagram, YouTube, all of those exciting places as well. Next week, Dom will be bringing an attraction to me, and I think it's one of his favourites, so make sure you stay tuned for that. It's the first part of one of my favourites. Ooh, multi-parter. <laughs> See you guys. The Review Time Podcast is brought to you by Luke Carroll and Dominic Lacey. We are produced gratefully by Luke Shakatano. Check out his spectacular design work over at Amusement Trading Co. My favorite piece of work from him currently is his amazing vectorized look at the Universal Tram Tour trams over the years. Show him some love over at AmusementTradingCo.com. A big special thanks also goes out to our patrons, Jake Cool, Jane McRoberts, Jeremy Koufakis, Louis Najira, Peter Matthews, Ruben Mays, Ray Dredge, John Madison, Michael Pinn, Janine Kerr, CG Lemonade, Josh Guilas, Tim Descenzo, Josie McDougall, Stephen Schwarrock, Matt Sakal, and to you, the listener. The Review Time Podcast will be back next week. <laughs>